When did you decide you were going to begin your own studio? When I graduated from Brooks Institute, I think 1975, believe it or not, I um, was fortunate enough to occupy a, a rental building that uh, had a little teeny office. And from the very beginning of my career, I saw the advantages of having some kind of exclusive place that I could go to each day rather than work out of my house. And that extended over time into me acquiring a studio. And then it became really a great part of, of the complexion of my career is to have the tools available 24-7 versus waking up in the morning, producing a movie, and renting everything. So I, I, I did what probably is not even possible anymore, but I started to acquire stuff and save it. <laughs> and I did that through you know all the years that I've been in this business, which has been quite a substantial amount of years. Like 37, I think you have on. I, I, I've been in the business doing television and commercials for at least 20, and but I've been in the field for 47 years, 37 years. 37 yeah. years, okay. So going back 37 years, what did you envision success to look like versus what do you envision it now? Because I know when someone starts a venture, they have all these grand ideas about how life's going to be right. and what it's going to be like every day to run a business. But then having been in the trenches, I'm sure seven days a week. Well, it's a, it's, it's a very interesting uh, question because as I reflect back on my career, you know, I was, I'm one of the few guys that actually has a left brain and a right brain where I, I'm a businessman and I'm also a creative guy. And that's an unusual combination. And ultimately, I knew from the very beginning that, and this is the same thing I tell my three daughters, you know, if you're lucky enough to find a career where you can do what you love, the money and all those other things come later, but they do come. And I started from scratch, and little by little, I built a business, and one thing leads to another, and then finally, I. Uh, probably at the beginning of the 80s, I started doing what I called hybrid filmmaking, which means I would not only do still photography, I'd do live action. And it became a category that's now taken for granted because everybody wants sound bites and everybody wants beautiful visuals. So now you can theoretically do pulls off of a, a, a red camera or the camera you're using right now. And they're usually 2K or 4K, and and you don't even need to bring in a still photographer. So I was doing both. So what was the biggest surprise to you having run a business for over 37 years? You know, the 80s were a much different time than it is now. Social media wasn't around. The, the whole thing is about reinventing yourself. It's funny, as I was driving into work this morning, um, you know, I, it, it became a, almost like an epiphany in my own mind that I'm not doing anything like what I was doing 10 years ago. So I had to basically reinvent myself. And, and as I look back in my career, that's all I've done throughout my whole career is reinvent myself. You become a, a photographer is what I was for many years, and you all of a sudden wake up in the morning and go, my God, I've been working on this one client for four years. Inevitably, that's great for the pocketbook, but not much for the advancements in what I want to be doing creatively. So you adapt, and it's crazy because I had one client uh, from ABC that told me, you know, why are you getting that big studio in Hollywood? I mean, can you, 
can you really actually make a living with that big studio? And I, and I, I know this is total cliche, but you know, if it's like the Kevin Cosner statement, you build it and they will come, I lucked out, you know, because at that time that I built the studio, which was uh, at the end of the, I think around 1999, I built the studio, I found myself you know, in a very unique situation that I didn't even realize, which is most people were getting rid of their studios. They were renting them. So I became a guy that actually had my own place. And as crazy as it sounds, you know, Roger Corman was a little bit of that motivation. And it was also my desire to create a place where their creativity could, could grow. So you could sit outside and have a cigarette or lunch and sit down next to a writer or sit down next to a DP or, you know, really take a position of, uh, of collaborating. And that was fun, you know. Did you have entrepreneurs in your family? Did you see them <laughs> Not model a single, this? No? <laughs> not a single entrepreneur. My dad was a sheet metalist, and my mom, you know, was a PTA, home housewife. Uh, I have two siblings. And um, no, I, I, I just lucked out and had a, a passion for what I did, and I was able to sit back and go, how can I take that and actually make more of it? And in, just to finish your first question, which relates directly to you know, um, the formation of setting up a business and, and going after what you want. I'm currently on my third film now, and, and this film here is, you know, equates to being part of that vision of working on meaningful projects. In this particular case, this movie was about a, a ro it's a romantic comedy, but it's also a pretty strong statement about uh, edible food and unedible food. <laughs> meaning fast food and farm to table. So I know you'd said in another interview that like, was it Richard Avedon and different photographers were some of your idols? Mm -hmm. um, Francesco Savullo, I don't know, you just all the sort of these fashion photographers. So it seems like that was your aim at one time to do that or products and then Well, I, when, I, when I was going to, uh, to uh, photography school, you know, you pick mentors if you're fortunate enough to be motivated by them. In my case, I had Richard Avedon, I had Pete Turner, and I had, you know, Scavulo, uh, Annie Leibovitz. You know, these are people I looked at as being somebody I'd like to be like. And, uh, and when I finished school, I moved to New York, and it, it became, uh, you know, almost a surprise to me to realize that, well, I think I can make a living in L.A. I don't need to live in New York, you know. And I knew back then that lifestyle was more important to me than money. And I did not want to, you know, um, leave my families and my friends. So I came back to L.A. and actually set up a business that way. Because I'm sure the allure of doing a, a Vogue cover you know, especially when you're just starting out is probably well, it's, enough it's, to it's, start. It's curious you say that because as a photographer, starting out at the beginning of my creative career, you know, I did everything. I did fashion, I did product shots, I anything but a wedding. And, and then you wake up one morning and somebody gives you some advice, you know, and that advice came at a high price. I paid a lot of money for somebody to give me advice when I was in my 20s on how to go to the next level. And the advice came with a question. The, the question was very simplistically, you know, what makes you different from everybody else? And, and he really screwed with me because he did not want to tell me what the simplistic answer was. Uh, so I tried everything. Oh, I do 
great people shots. I, I build great sets. I can motivate children. I can, and then he said, no, 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 no. Think about it and we'll talk next week. <laughs> and I was terrified because I thought, how could I be so stupid? He's asking me a question about my own career. And then finally I spit out, I'm a, I'm a problem solver. And the guy looks at me and I look at him and he goes, finally, you know? And that's really, you know, kind of encompasses everything about creativity. How do you, you know, make a documentary? You gotta solve the problem. How do you make a, uh, in my case, I, I came across a great idea for a TV show called The Cleaner based on personal experiences and how do you sell it? Well, you know, you wake up one morning and you solve the problem. You know, you gotta figure out, in, in our case, since I was half filmmaker, half photographer, I started videotaping the highlights with the person, the real person that the show's about. It was the first AMC drama that they made. This is way before Walking Dead and all this other stuff. And um, we were lucky enough to have Benjamin Bratt as the star and the character that he played on the TV show was a gentleman that I knew in real life. So I filmed him multiple times talking about what he did for a living and condensed it into a 60 second piece and that's how I sold the TV show. And it wasn't until, you know, six, eight months later when I'm working with the crew on a pilot that they say, do you know this is like a one in a million <laughs> that you could sell a show with no show of success? <laughs> And that's kind of the way I've run my whole career, is trying to focus on my goal, what is, you know, what is the, the, the real net um, choice that I'm gonna make. Am I gonna make a movie about the circus or am I gonna make a movie about you know, somebody that goes out and saves people from themselves? And uh, that's kind of why I have a, uh, probably a portfolio <laughs> visually of uh, different styles. I'm always interested in trying to grow. Well, speaking of growing, so looking back on that Mr. Miyagi or whoever he was that was sort of mentoring you, mm -hmm. do you ever think what would have happened if you hadn't met this person, as frustrating as that experience was well, for a little bit? It's it, this person defined, um, it's funny, you can hire a psychologist to come into your business, they're called business consultants. They come in, they try to read your mind, they try to read what your goals are, and they try to help you understand how to get there. And the most basic thing is, who are you? <laughs> you know, what do you really offer? And it's funny because as you listen to other filmmakers talk, listen to other writers talk, you know, it all comes down to one thing, and that is defining what your goals are. And Bethany, who's my producer, brought in front of me a opportunity to go to a, a screenwriting fest in Hollywood that producers and writers and are able to, uh, to meet and actually um, get pitched. On one level, it's a little bit like one of those dating, real life dating situations where they, you got 30 seconds to meet, three minutes to meet somebody and then the bell goes off and they switch. Yeah. It's identical to that, but each time they're pitching you their movie. And immediately I said to Bethany, I said, I don't want to take any pitches for science fiction. I don't want to take any pitches, you know, for comedies. I don't want to take any pitch. I want real life stories. And uh, it helped define my goal, which is to find something that I wanted to do rather than being inundated with all these other forms 
and I'm not critical of them. It's just not what I want to do. Your new comedy, Jay, Off the Menu, it's a romantic comedy set in uh, New Mexico based on food, love, different things. I want to hear more about that in a little bit, but I'm so curious about how you met this screenwriter. I think you said off camera it was at Script Pipeline. Yeah. So it's like a screenplay, sort of meet and greet or something. Correct. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about like what it was like to go there, what your expectations were, and how it was to sit down with these different screenwriters? I'm gonna I'm gonna help you here. Okay. okay so sure. um, when I set out to make my next movie, Bethany, my producer, um, suggested we go to screen a screenwriter's pipeline kind of uh, a day in Hollywood where producers are invited to meet screenwriters. And it's, you know, it sounds to me a little bit like an overwhelming joke, but it turned out to be pretty fascinating as a producer as well as a director to uh, sit face to face with screenwriters that have busted their butts to, uh, you know, actually meet people uh, and share their hard work that actually could actually make a decision on taking this project to market. Um, I can tell you honestly the screenwriters and no different than filmmakers, you know, finding your next project is, is hugely challenging but we made a decision uh, right out the gate that we really didn't want to take pitches from anybody unless they were within the framework of something that we wanted, which was a story that was going to do the opposite of my last movie. My last movie, Girl on the Edge, is a very serious drama about a real life event. And we didn't care about whether it was real life now or not. All we cared about was we wanted to do something that was inspirational, entertaining. And we were lucky enough to meet Jen Goldson, the screenwriter of Off the Menu, at a a writer's fest, so to speak, in Hollywood where you meet writers and you meet producers and you have an ability to be able to be pitched these properties. And what's really cool about it is you hear it from the person who actually wrote the material and you hear it very quickly. I, I think they gave each creative writer three minutes to pitch their, their screenplay and, you know, it was one of the ones that uh, Bethany brought to my attention and we read it and we liked it. And we, we thought we could make this, you know, cool. I mean, one of the big challenges of any type of uh, purchase of a screenplay, besides negotiating it, is always going to be, is it even affordable to make? Because these are independent movies and, you know, maybe they're 18 to 20 day shoots. So you have to have a screenwriter that's not only willing to sell their property, but is also willing to modify it or allow me to modify it into something that is actually something we can make. Because ultimately, in my movie, uh, Off the Menu, the screenwriter had written in a finale where it was a hot air balloon being chased by a truck, and that itself might have costed half of what the movie cost. <laughs> Although it was great writing, it was something that was unaffordable. So we were able to come to some uh, you know, favorable solution. Yeah, I was curious about that. So it's not only do you like the material, but also how much of a you know marriage is it really for that Correct. that time? How how agreeable is the other person going to be, and vice versa? You, you know, it's a it's a very important um, thing for me. Um, you know, filmmaking is a collaborative medium. I'm not a screenwriter, uh, although I'm collaborating on screenplays all the time 
that I'm trying to take to market for myself. But ultimately, you wake up in the morning and you really do come to some real physical realities, and that is, you know, um, I don't think screenwriters generally sit down and go, this is a $1 million movie, <laughs> this is a $50 million movie. They just write from their heart. And, and um, I think it's somewhat critical that, that in my life that I have a good relationship with these people because the last thing I want to do is A, ruin their movie, and B, you know, turn it into something that it never was supposed to be. I mean, I have a good friend right now that bought a really motivational big time movie, you know, a $30, $40 million movie, and they shot the movie and the editor started cutting it to emphasize something that was never intended. And that's the way the movie was finished. Oh. So from my standpoint, uh, if it's better, that's great. But if I was the screenwriter, I would be horrified. Right, and I want to go into that later about any types of revisions while sure. you're on set and things like that. But what did Jennifer do right in her pitch to you? I think I think Jennifer um, did a nice pitch, enough to get Bethany to read the script, and then Bethany give me the script. But she writes with a really believable uh, pitch in her dialogue that instantly uh, found all of us engaged with versus, you know, when I read scripts, sometimes it's painful because they're writing in a zone that requires you to get through 10 pages before you start to feel um, a, a, a sense of uh, being a part to the tone of the, of the screenplay. And from, from page one, I knew that it was going to be a quick read. And I think a lot of directors will say the same thing about properties that they've taken. They just couldn't put it down. And this was, you know, that kind of an experience. Having gone through the experience meeting Jen, going to this pitch fest, what advice could you give other screenwriters on meeting a filmmaker and pitching their script? You know, it's no different than being a photographer or a director. You don't have an opportunity to explain yourself. It's either on the page or it's not on the page. Now, if I had met Jen and she was, quote unquote, difficult <laughs> just at the get-go, I probably would have never even read the script, you know? So I think having a little bit of communication skills is a gift in that regard. I also think, you know, stereotypically, I'm not, a, I'm not like the stereotype. I'm open to uh, collaborating. And if you find out right at the beginning that the person isn't, uh, here's a great example. A woman um, who, uh, Bethany again, found me a wonderful script about um, uh, bigotry and uh, the challenge of uh, working with skinheads. And it was a really, really well-written movie. It was also uh, a play. And I had wished, in hindsight, that I didn't spend an hour on the phone with the writer when they said, oh, one thing I forgot to tell you is I have to direct this myself. <laughs> oh, so I felt, you know, that that was something that should have come out in the first 10 seconds. Because yeah. to me, you know, um, it's not uncommon for a screenwriter to say, I don't want anybody else to direct this but me. I, I only produce movies that I direct. And the outcome of it is, is that, you know, I've learned that lesson now. <laughs> Right. So then if, if that is a requirement or special requirements, mm -hmm. like I want very little edits done, to right. get I that would, out would, right away? I would pass, yeah. I mean, 
It's just not worth it. There's too many. The, the independent film business is so uh, convoluted with waste and waste. And then when you finally get to execution, here's a wonderful example. Um, my other producer, Will Newman, who helped produce this movie, uh, he, he was like, uh, um, you know, the, not just an incredible collaborator to this movie, but he was the hatchet man in a positive way. He would come in and say, no disrespect to Jen's material, but she's got 56 characters. And he knew right away, bingo, that that was going to translate into a, uh, a portion of the budget that was disproportionate with what we had. And what does that mean in English? The only affordable amount of characters we could have, in his opinion, was between 20 and 25 characters. And I know that sounds crazy, but any independent filmmaker is going to come in front of the same moment that I came in front of when you go, do you really need that character to walk in the door and go, hey, you got a phone call? That character is a SAG talking actor, and that's going to cost you X amount of dollars, and you put 40 more of those in the movie, and you've made a movie that you're not going to be able to afford. And it's crazy, and you know, I know that you're interviewing me about creativity, but if you can get this stuff off the table before you start talking creativity, you, you'll have, you know, in my opinion, a more controllable project. Once Jennifer Goldson got you the script to read, how much time passed before you finally read it and then finally said okay to it? That's a wonderful question because I don't think that Bethany, uh, Joe Gamash, who's one of my other producers, and Will even could have believed that, I believe we bought the property in like our October and we were in pre-production in January and we shot the movie in August or September or something. Uh, it's just unheard of. But, you know, that's the way I work. And the outcome of it is, is at this rate, we can produce a movie every couple years and in success, use the, the moderate success of, of these movies to finance the next movie. Are you okay with talking about what the next steps were once you all agreed that we really love this film and we think we can do it for a reasonable budget? What were some of the next things you did to actually secure the deal? Well, once we made a deal with the screenwriter, you, you basically option the script. You pay a certain amount of money, and thus that gives you the comfort of writing the script, uh, modifying the script, and then actually making the decision to green light it. That happened in, in just a few months for me on this movie uh, versus buying a script off the shelf, spending two years in pre-production, <laughs> and then actually going out and shooting it, um, there's so many, there's so much equity in experience here. Because first timers, including myself, you make a lot of mistakes. And I just mentioned one of them. I mean, we just got a bill for the last movie from SAG that was unaffordable. And the movie hasn't even, I don't wanna, I don't wanna complain about it, but the movie hasn't even you know, broken even, and we're getting bills from SAG for residuals, and the movie never came out of theaters. I'm not complaining right now. What I'm trying to say is I'd never anticipated that. So for my next film, I'll have to put away funds rather than having to borrow funds in order to pay for the, my last movie, SAG, because the way the financials work in independent filmmaking, if you're lucky enough to get a distributor, and I mean that honestly, 
because there's so much of a flood of independent filmmaking now. If you're in, uh, lucky enough to get an in, uh, independent uh, uh, distributor, you have one thing conquered. But what you don't have is the concept of how Hollywood works. You know, first, uh, you're the last person to get paid. And that in itself is troubling because I finance the movie myself. I can't even conceptualize what it must feel like. And I do know somebody recently who made a movie and I, I believe Netflix wanted to buy it for a substantial amount of money, and, uh, but not enough to break even. And, and uh, the filmmaker had no choice in the matter because he was a hired hand. Even though he directed the movie and produced it, all the money was borrowed. And he really, you know, had to acquiesce to the sale. And the, I don't think the movie's ever broken even, and he doesn't even talk to the people that he borrowed the money from. And this is not a negative or a positive, it's just an observation of just how, you know, um, perception reality. I had a guy yesterday tell me, wow, your movie just came out Yesterday it came out, and he goes, "Are you going to buy a new house?" And I'm going, <laughs> w w "You read People magazine, you know." <laughs> and I don't mean that as a joke because it's the first thing you see in the news. Star Wars made X amount of money. No one, including myself, has any context to understanding what that means. And the outcome of it is is that you know I think it's pretty critical to understand that the business is changing. My last film and this film, it's totally different. We, we didn't have a distributor when we did the first movie. We had a sales rep. And then he in turn sold it to Fox. He in turn sold it to Sony domestically. And it's not a question of good or bad. It's just a question of understanding. And this time around, rather than sell it internationally first, we did what most people do, which I didn't know. We sold domestically first, you know. And now we're selling Europe and all the other territories. So we're doing it probably a much better way now than we did the first time. I wanted to go back to what you said about putting away reserves. You know, I've heard this with people that have business issues with payroll taxes, different things. I don't think people realize the, the value of reserves or saving yourself. Right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll kill two birds with one stone here because I know you're going to talk about tax credits. And I'll also talk about the question you just asked me. I don't think you can ever really be too prepared <laughs> for how much money this stuff all costs. It is uh, um, an extraordinary thing that I made uh, two movies now with a non-union crew. Am I bragging about it? Not at all. But it made me afford to do the movie. I couldn't have done the movie, my first movie, if it was a sanctioned union movie. This is independent filmmaking, you know. When you, uh, I just saw a movie the other night that was all shot on an iPhone, of people traveling from from Syria to uh, to Berlin at a film festival it was brilliant. All shot on an iPhone, and uh, and I'm sure it's all of his family members. So he doesn't have the burden of the stuff I'm talking about. I actually make movies, and I'm a signature to SAG, so I want the best talent I can get to make these movies. But with that comes a lot of little surprises, you know? And they're not surprises by deception, they're just ignorance. And as a filmmaker and a producer, yeah, I, I, and, and as the world changes, you know, monthly <laughs> in, in this business, I can tell you right now, most distributors uh, that distribute independent properties 
that existed three years ago, half of them don't exist anymore because it's just not, the business model's changed. And when I made my last movie, DVDs were actually an, an interesting proposition. Now it's a fragment. So constantly it's changing. Let's talk about the music and off the menu. You have a composer that you hired? Yeah, a gentleman by the name of Dave Holden was the composer of both my films, Girl on the Edge and this recent film, Off the Menu. And my experience in working with him and collaborating with him has been ma magnificent. Um, one of the things you learn in independent filmmaking is um, after you're burned out making the movie, you, you get to an editing room and you start putting staples that are, or examples that are available to the editor to stick in for, for cutting purposes, but you could never afford to buy. And in this particular case, um, uh, my first movie and this movie, uh, Dave mandated, if I wanted to work with him, I had to use original musicians that um, essentially encompass the entire score of the film. And I was, I used to be a musician, and for me that was just too good to be true. But along with that comes, you know, just a burden for the filmmaker and for the composer because everybody wants magic. And all the other composers that we interviewed for the movie were, were all going to do it on a synthesizer, you know. He goes, you won't even be able to tell the difference in the violins, you know. You won't be able to tell the difference, you know, with uh, the scale of the orchestra. It'll just be totally believable. And that's true. But when you bring in live musicians, there's just something that happens, especially if they're scoring it to picture, and that's what we did. We were very lucky to uh, bring in some of the best musicians in Los Angeles and, and then double them and make them look, you know, the... Uh, a 16-piece orchestra sound like a 60-piece orchestra. Um, it's an interesting uh, question uh, about the fundamentals of, of putting music in a movie because m movies require you to, um, um, you have a number of avenues. You could, you could buy stock music, needle drop is what it's called, uh, and usually very affordable. In, um, and you can pay extra to have it uh, for life, and you know what your burden is. And since you're speaking to not just the director, but the producer, I'm gonna tell you that that is a huge surprise to a lot of filmmakers because they get up in the morning and they go, I gotta have that uh, track from the Rolling Stones because the movie's about this, and they got a song about this, and that was part of my pitch when I told my investors and then he goes about trying to get the song and the song he might get a great deal on the song he might pay i'm making this up right now 50 grand for that song i'm talking about uh, because the filmmakers have a rapport with the manager of the band or what have you the problem is those songs that they're buying all are licensed which means come up a year they got to re uh, divvy up funds and i know a filmmaker um, you know, that uh, made that mistake and put in a, at least six songs in his movie that are already established songs, but his nut annually is about 175 grand. Whether the movie makes money or not, he's gotta pay it. And one of the luxuries I had is the, the composer not only was passionate enough to wanna to be a part of this project, but he saw a life at the other end where he could resell the music. 
and make it up there. And it's turned into a very profitable thing, actually more profitable for him than me, because he can license the music to anybody. Sorry to play the devil's advocate here, but wouldn't the contract say that he was purchasing it for this amount in perpetuity, or wouldn't there be a time frame when he would need to renew or something? Well, this producer and director, who shall remain nameless, doesn't really, you know, he's not an attorney, and, and he is so elated to get the music, mm. he probably, I can only speculate, you know, just like me. I'm not reading the fine print. And the outcome of it is, is that he woke up in the morning just with, with a huge smack in the face of something that he never anticipated. And to me, like I mentioned earlier, you know, with my last film, I was never expecting to get a bill from SAG. I thought I'd paid all the people and the movie hadn't even made half its money back. Why am I getting billed for residuals? And ignorance, you can call me a total dope but I never was educated on that component. So I had to pull that money, which was over 20 grand, out of my own pocket, because uh, the funds just simply aren't there, and I learned a huge lesson. So now, to your point, I will put in my budget, you know, a certain amount of money aside for that 12 months later moment where you gotta go, hey, I gotta pay everybody. You know, another example is, is uh, just understanding what you can't do and what you can do. Uh, and this goes to music, this what goes to uh, SAG actors, and this goes to getting excited about doing a uh, special screening and not knowing the rules. Because <laughs> right. if you take in money, that, that takes you to a different level. <laughs> And forgive me for asking yeah. it in that way, but I, and I wouldn't have known that either. I wouldn't know that it's, you would need to renew, a, I mean, a licensing fee or something, you'd be on the hook for another year. and. Well, with music, you you know, this is very interesting. Great question because I believe, and I'm sure that what I'm suggesting happens all the time, is you sell your movie to, let's just say hypothetically, it's really well received at Sundance. You sell your movie to to uh, a big, you know, five-star distribution company, and they go and recut it and pull those expensive songs out because they want to make money. Or conversely, the filmmaker pulls them out right. so his film becomes more sellable. Interesting. Yeah, Good to and, know. and I have a friend who actually, my first screenwriter, my first movie, he sold his movie at Sundance, and uh, it was called um, uh, Blue Valentine. Oh. And his name's uh, jo Joey Curtis. Oh, sorry. A very nice guy. He, he co wrote that movie, but. In his case, his next film was was everybody was looking forward to it because his name was equated with a movie that won at Sundance. And the outcome of it was is um, uh, the person that bought his next movie gave him an extra half million dollars to sweeten the pie, put in better music, better sound effects. So that also happens as well. That's that's a gold mine in that case. <laughs> Right. Oh, great to know. Yeah. yeah. Just all these little surprises that you wouldn't expect and you don't want to get that email on Monday morning. Yeah. I, 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 I think, you know, um, the film business is, is a, a complicated business. And, you know, you read in the papers about bad blood between distributors and um, filmmakers on very, very successful movies. And you know, you see that uh, I'm just making this up. That the guy who 
wrote a film that won four, you know, four Oscars, is, still hasn't made one royalty yet. But meanwhile, you know, everybody else has got their hands out. Yeah. And it's creative financing and what have you, but you know, that doesn't even affect me now because I'm not even involved in that. But it is something you gotta educate yourself. Well, I had one filmmaker say to me that they made sort of a $250,000 reel for themselves. That's what they considered it at the end of the day. And it became a calling card and then right. it led to other things, but they were surprised too. Well, I think we all make movies as filmmakers to, to help identify uh, our next endeavor. And, and, and you project a positive review, you project a positive, in some cases, financial success, people are more attracted to you. Um, that's why I found it interesting in an earlier part of this conversation where I said screenwriters write great pieces but they insist on directing it themselves when in my mind, if you're an unknown, you're more likely not gonna see that as a positive conclusion because who would put their money into a director that's never made a movie before? How often are you looking for scripts to purchase? Constantly. What's your process? Where are you looking? I'm looking right now for a script uh, for my next movie and working on ideas at the same time. Um, we've had some bumps in the road. I, I tried to option a book we got very excited about it, and it turned out that the book was uh, entangled in another country, uh, even though the rights had run out. Uh, the other country had a tax credit for the film and gave them advanced funds, which I didn't know this, but legally terminate any kind of future purchase because the money's already in play. Wow. I never knew that. It's fascinating information because yeah. I would never think that either. You just, these are all things that. I don't think the writer of the book knew that either. Oh, no. Yeah. Wow, so so once you found out that that's probably a no-go, at least Which for now. Which was a week ago. What's a week ago, okay. <laughs> the, how do you kind of get back on the horse and start looking for something? I started new? immediately. You know, a filmmaker typically doesn't have just one project that he's interested in doing. In my case, I have a pretty important mandate. I'm only looking to do projects that are um, um, personally beneficial to the world. <laughs> and I'm not talking about pollution or something like that. I'm talking about a meaningful project that, that would uh, help people engage uh, and, and, and see things. Filmmaking is so brilliant. I just saw a great movie, I can mention it, called The Insult. And it is, it's a masterpiece. Why is it a masterpiece? Go see the movie and you'll understand because it talks about, you know, it didn't matter that it was filmed in Lebanon. What mattered to me was it could have been anywhere. And whether you're talking positive about politics or negative, it could have happened anywhere. And it was not a true story. It was fiction. But the way it was filmed and the way it was written uh, really tells a great story about tolerance and talks about hatred. And when, when you see a film like that and you walk out, you, you're, you're affected in a way almost Shakespearean. And um, that's the kind of films that I wanna make. Films that viscerally help you understand the world more and maybe make you more tolerant, maybe make you more perceptive, and you know, certainly 
filmmaking is one of the best vehicles um, um, other than speech. And to me, or a book, a filmmaker, you know, really has an opportunity to tell a story and uh, with the, the belief, n not in a purposeful preaching, but the belief is you'll walk out and you'll have a perspective you might never have had. I think that you've said before that you don't use a lot of nudity or swearing, like vulgar language in your films. Why is that? I don't think it's, um, it's very interesting. Whenever I hear a story about a crazy actor or a crazy filmmaker or, or, or a movie that does something outlandish, you know, the first thing I think of as a filmmaker, God, could I have asked that actor to do that? Or, you know, I just read an article about Tarantino having to strangle Uma Thurman and he chose to do it himself and I don't have an opinion of that. The only thing I can say to you is, is I don't think I would have done that. But I don't make Pulp Fiction, you know? And this is not a derogatory, this is actually a, a statement about the depths of being a, a filmmaker because during my movie that I just made, there was a number of times you could say, what if the kid drowned? You know, uh, what, what if somebody choked on the food? What if, they can go, what if until the cows come home? But the outcome of it is, is that um, I don't think um, language, uh, uh, even though I swear a lot, I don't think language, it doesn't, I, I don't think a character needs to swear if it's written properly. And it doesn't even have to be come out of his mouth, it's his physical actions. I'm not opposed to using bad language in a movie. I'm just saying to you that just so happens. In my first movie, Girl on the Edge, I'm going to tell you that since it's a movie that's biographical and I'm part of it, I was freely open to say, I'm going to say exactly what I said. And the movie exposes a, a, a parent, and I was the father, played by Gil Bellows. And, you know, I think it was important to be honest and truthful. And I got a lot of shit because people thought that the language, which was the F word, was used too much. But when, when your own child gets raped and you're trying to condole, con console her uh, or help her understand the position she put herself in, you say things that you can't believe came out of your mouth. And we consciously, the screenwriter who, uh, Joe Gamash, who predominantly wrote that movie will say to you unequivocally that Jay you keep mentioning it this is what happened you know I want it to be truthful so and, and, and if you read the reviews on Amazon about uh, Girl on the Edge there are people that have said the language was was intense and that's why I used it because it's truthful I'm sure anyone who's a parent would but there was there, there was writing in my script that I just did that I just said, there's no reason to use that word. Let's just tell them, you know, screw off, you know? Can we go back to the negotiation process of securing the script with Jennifer? How did that go once you said well, yes to it? I think before, and I'm not going to talk money, but I think before you even start this conversation, I think it, it really is appealing to me that the filmmaker wants to make the movie as much as the screenwriter wants the filmmaker to make the movie. I think it's almost a prerequisite. It's kind of like throughout my 37 years in my own business here, I've always made it a prerequisite to say to whoever I am about to employ 
that in as much as, you know, I'd love for you to take the job, you know, I would like to, <laughs> to tell you that the feelings are mutual, you know, because if you don't want the job, but you want, you'd like the, the, the employment, I'm really not interested in you, you know, because it's about growing. And to me, when a filmmaker secures a script um, and negotiates a deal, I think most of that is predicated on the screenwriter's ability to actually look at it as an investment in themselves. When I was trying to negotiate my current book deal for this book I was trying to buy, you know, I had had multiple conversations with the, 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 the author of the book um, about my vision, but because of my experience, it also included real reality conversations about the kind of budgets I work in and the commitments that I make. And I'm one of the few people that can sit here and talk to you and say, I do what I say I'm gonna do. And Jennifer knew that, you know, she'll only get a fragment of what I have to pay her until production starts. And once production starts, it triggers the, uh, at least I think it triggers a 50 or 70% uh, advance on what she's supposed to get paid. And typically what ends up happening is, is you know, most scripts are bought and they're never produced. And I think what was appealing to her is her first movie was gonna get written, I mean, was gonna get made, and that to her was invaluable. And currently, the book that I just tried to buy was a situation where the control was removed. And it's in incredibly uh, important to me because when you're making independent films, um, screenwriters saying they're holding out for the big bucks or screenwriters holding out for a certain director, or as I mentioned before, a screenwriter actually holding out so they can direct it themselves. These are all self-induced um, uh, obstacles that they're creating for themselves. And I think it, it all comes down to, I'm gonna get a film made. And how many screenwriters, I've got friends that are incredibly successful screenwriters that have never gotten one of their movies produced. But they're writing movies for big, you know, Hollywood movies. And um, they just never make it to the screen. And to any screenwriter, that's very common. But from a filmmaker's standpoint, uh, I think, you know, the, the concept of actually taking a screenplay, buying it, and putting it in production is a rare thing, very rare. So that to me is, quote unquote, an enticement. <laughs> So then going into production triggered an execution of Correct. the, of, uh, so then Correct. you then. Well, it no longer becomes an option of a mm -hmm. script. It becomes actual, it's in production. Okay, so then you have your duty to, to give her the money for that. And then what rights does the screenwriter usually have when it comes to changing anything? It's all negotiable mm -hmm. in, in um, number one, you know, I think every filmmaker that's doing movies like I'm doing, independent films, is really not interested in exploiting the screenwriter. Oh, right. Uh, so mm -hmm. she, in my case, retained rights for a TV series, and, and, and she also you know, has an ability to make sequels, and okay. so forth and so on. You, know, you have these concepts that are, that are pre-described that make it enticing. But if you do it, and I know Jen 
well enough now to say she wouldn't be hurt if I said this, it was never about the money. It was about getting your property actually made. Right. And so was she ever on uh, set with you? Well, we invited her to the set at the end. Uh, and in all honesty, no disrespect to her, but there's such an enormous amount of pressure to get a movie made, and especially independent movies. You're working on such, you're shooting 27, 35 scenes a day. And the last thing I wanted to do was have someone sitting behind me that is questioning the tone or what have you. Sure, that and makes sense. she trusted me, and when we finally got her kind of positive green light, we let her come more, you know. But it, it, it was not personal. It, no, had, no. it had to do with actually my own insecurities. Well, I mean, when even doing Film Courage, I wouldn't want someone except David sitting behind me telling me don't ask that. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. it's different right. if it's you and I talking about it. Right. But I, I don't think that's unreasonable at all, right. especially if you but, have all but, that money on the you line. Know, yeah. the, th the thing is, is um, I lucked out on this movie off the menu because, number one, I hired two leads that were total professionals. Uh, they had already had significant amount of success. Danya had a movie called, uh, um, well, she was on The Sopranos. She was also on Heroes on TV. She was also, she's currently on um, Once Upon a Time. And, and then you've got Santino Fontana, who essentially, he's was one of the leads in the animation film called Frozen. And he's a lead on uh, a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So these guys, I'm not gonna tell how to do comedy. Right. <laughs> and, and as a matter of fact, as a filmmaker, you know, it's, I encourage improvising. And a lot of the stuff that they took, they made better. And um, I don't have any complaints whatsoever. So I'm very fortunate. And the entire cast of this movie uh, you can't make independent movies with amateur actors. You just can't do it because typically what ends up happening is they will cost you, you know, two, three times what you expected because you can't get through the day. You know, you're held up. Uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a lie that, you know, in my case, this, I would always do two takes, but uh, in many cases, uh, filmmakers on independent movies don't even do one take. It's the Clint Eastwood model. <laughs> what is it like for you on set trying to make your day? How bound are you by the hour, the minute? Um, number one, I'm the executive producer of this movie and I'm also the director. And I think it's super critical that boundaries are set right away. And in the case of Will Newman, my producer, um, he personally was responsible for, you know, in advance in pre-production scheduling my day along with the DP. And um, uh, Matt Edwards, who was the DP of the movie, is really the most important person on the set because if he slows down or can't make the day that he previously agreed to, you know, this has a incredibly dark story <laughs> at the end of the day because the next day you've got a whole nother list of things. And what made Will such an asset to our movie, and, and then again, also um, a Matt, um, an incredible asset is your ability to be honest with yourself, you know? And I mentioned earlier that the screenwriter had a beautiful third act 
where the hot air balloons were being chased by a truck and the, the actors were hanging out of the truck and hanging out of the balloon. And I mean, there's just no way we could have done that in, even in an economical way in less than a day versus the way we ended up doing it is in less than a half a day on the Rio Grande. Um, that was our creative solution that the screenwriter agreed to. And you know, if she didn't agree to it, it we would have come up with something else. But the outcome of it is we collaborated on it. And um, as a producer and a, a director, I, it was my goal to make the day every day. And I think we, we made the day every day but one day. And the reason we didn't make it that day was some, something that was unexpected happened. And it happens all the time in the business. I mean, one of the, the, the real tragedies of doing independent filmmaking is, 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 you know, things that you can't control. So my movie takes place predominantly in Taos, New Mexico and in L.A. And I made a uh, significantly smart decision to build a, um, a kitchen here on my stage that we could flick a switch each day and modify the lighting, but never have to worry about the sun going behind the building next door, never have to worry about going into overtime and, and this, no light at all. Um, it gave us an ability to do probably two times more work on the stage than we would have done in New Mexico at a, at a real restaurant. And most importantly, creatively, I was able to, you know, work with the set designer and, and create something that I feel was one of the most magical parts of the movie is her domain, her restaurant, her, her dining room. And all that was made on my stage. What's your formula or process for telling a good story? You know, this is a really great question. Um, I think that storytelling you know, I am not a verbal person, I am a visual person. And you constantly, if you're Steven Spielberg, uh, self-edit before you even go out on the stage, you know, go on the, on, on the location. You already know what you want, bing, 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 bing. If you're really fortunate, I think, um, um, and I always used to say this when I was doing commercials, uh, you know, Ridley Scott builds a 180-foot wide set and when the, when the scene's over with, you look at it and they only use 12 feet of it, you know. Uh, he's got that luxury. In independent filmmaking, you don't have that luxury. And, 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 and quite frankly, you have to be intuitive enough to recognize what your, your quest is. And in storytelling, you know, is, is that scene really necessary where the little girl goes and knocks on the door and says, you know, um, hey, you want to come out and play? Uh, can we just cut to her, you know, already there? And, and then you start self-editing. And typically this is motivated by your desire to keep the story intact but be inventive. And we had to do that all the time, you know. Um, and, and I think especially having, um, even though Jen wrote the script, Joe Gamash, who is one of the producers, is also a writer, and he was able to, on the fly, help us simplify scenes, you know, that were sometimes over um, uh, complicated. And I'm not talking about the writing, I'm talking about having to shoot it from six angles. Um, 
And, and it's interesting because when you read or hear interviews like you're doing on me from great filmmakers, uh, typically, uh, especially someone like Clint Eastwood, will will actually talk about the fact that why that scene only come from one point of view, and he goes, "That's all I needed." And and even the actors complained. They wanted, to, don't I get a close up? You know. And and I thought to myself, it's 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 it's. It, Clint Eastwood's got a lot of balls, you know, to be able to wake up in the morning and just say no, you know. And it's, it's so funny because I'm always fascinated about reading about backstories about other filmmakers. And, you know, it takes a lot of guts and a lot of self-confidence to take the most dramatic scene in your movie. My last film, Girl on the Edge, there's a very climatic, dramatic moment where Peter Coyote is talking to Taylor Spritler, uh, the star of the film. And it's a very serious moment, and we just organically felt this isn't going to be covered in and be all handheld, and we'll do it from a couple moves on the fly, but we will not do new setups. We'll just keep filming. And that works for me, you know, and it worked for the film, because from an editorial standpoint, you're not putting together five angles of emotions that are drifting. You know, one moment you might feel it's great to talk about this and get close, and the next take you might not. And, and that's, I think actors appreciate that, giving them the freedom to um, bring out storytelling in a, in a way that is more coming from their hearts. How much time did you spend developing the script before pre-production? In the movie that I just made off the menu, the the pre-production period was around six months. It really became a legitimate pre-production three months before, meaning we hire on some of the department heads and we start actually actively pre-production. But I call it pre-production the minute that the producers start working on you know, managing our days, managing our equipment, managing our location time. I mean, I, I started scouting location six months before we started shooting. Did you set a production date before the script was ready? That's a real important question because ultimately um, there are so many factors that enter the game. We had another actor lead that pulled out, I think, three weeks before we went into production, and that's always a big fear because I don't care how much you think you're paying them is good, it's never even close to a legitimate film. And the actor that we had hired for uh, my, both my last movie and this movies fell out, not because they didn't want the project, but because they got a huge project. And one of them, I believe, was uh, tr Transformers, you know what I oh, mean? Okay. So how do you compete <laughs> with that, you know? Um, but when you finally, it's very interesting because you'll find that most Independent films are casted literally days before the film actually goes into production because of this problem. And no disrespect to the agents, but why would the agent take a, you know, a small uh, uh, independent movie over Transformers, you know? <laughs> His business model is to get as much business as he can for the actor. Um, that's why it's important to hire actors that really want to do this movie which we were lucky enough to have. And then if you're lucky enough to get someone like Peter Coyote in a movie, you know, you, you're even more vibrantly uh, walking down a road of, of just total luck. 
great luck. I know you mentioned previously about an actor dropping out, getting cast in something huge at the last minute. Aside from that, and I know that's a huge thing, what was one of the other biggest challenges you faced in pre-production, and how did you work through it? Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, Bethany uh, and Will, my producers who came in right at the beginning of the film, you know, we're, we're tackling a monumental task for very little money. So you have to be smart, you have to be intuitive, and of course you have to look at the clock and go, hey, if we start pre-production, meaning we bring in set designers, we bring in department heads, you know, we need to do that. I'm making this up six weeks to eight weeks before we actually start day one. And you know, all of a sudden it became very clear to me that, uh, and it became very clear to them that there was so much to do, especially because we were, we, my studio's in Hollywood and the movie split between Hollywood and New Mexico. You, you arise to the realities that weather's gonna be a problem, you arise to the reality of tax credits, you, you, you actually wake up in a, almost a, a splash of water in your face to um, complexities that you would have never even thought of, such as in our case, in the finale of the movie, the actress almost drowns in the Rio Grande, and check this out, you know, four weeks before production, we've, we went and scouted for a, what they call a tech scout with the DP and with the gaffer and grip, and we, and we were excited, but we were conceptually flabbergasted by the fact that because of the drought, the Rio Grande had lowered probably five inches from what it was when I went five weeks earlier. And then, of course, it, it, it was predicted that it was going to continue to go down. And there was a time where we wondered, perhaps we're not even going to be able to shoot on the Rio Grande because it's, it's just not enough water in it. And it's one of the only things that I had to uh, uh, vie for when I finished the movie was have um, the finale, the grand finale of the movie, uh, digital effects put in to make it look more dangerous because the actors were literally working in four feet of water, uh, submerged, uh, just enough for their, their butt to clear the water line. And you know, it worked, there's no, you know, there's no giveaway there, but who would have ever imagined that it would have gone down three feet by the time I, two months earlier than it was. And it, it all had to do with the drought. And the reality is it was cold, you know? So all these things combined, and we had safety issues. You know, we had to hire people to be down the river to catch them. God forbid that something uh, cut loose. We had to bring in stunt people from Albuquerque and uh, to play the little girl, and also to do stunts. You know, for the for the major actor um, because he rides a bike and flips off. You know, all this stuff looks real easy, but when you get out there to do it, it, it the quick tell, in my opinion, is when you wake up in the morning and somebody says, like me, like Tarantino did to Uma Thurman, you can ride the car, it shouldn't be any problem at all. Well, the truth of it is, in, in my case, you know, I had the same, same kind of challenges that every filmmaker has. Should this be something that the stunt man does, or is the actor agile enough to, you know, to jump off the bike himself? And everybody convinced me it's worth paying for you know, a stuntman, even though the actor was willing to do it. 
And the big advantage that really is truthful in the conclusion is that A, nobody got hurt, and B, we did it in one take. Wow. So, you know, it's, uh, there's a scene in my movie where the little girl is driving a pickup truck into the Rio Grande. How do you go about setting a shot up like that on a low-budget movie? And, you know, that was a challenge. And how long is that going to take? And, you know, how could we cheat it? You know, can we, can we make it? And we ended up cheating it. We ended up bringing in uh, water guns and have her stop before she got into the lake shot off the water guns and then changed the angle so it looked like the, well, the truck was already in the water, you know? So it's, I mean, and, and here again, none of this stuff came directly from me. It's a collaboration. I think what's critical, to be an inventive filmmaker, you gotta just drop your ego at the door and you gotta know. There's a reason why somebody like Will Newman, who was my producer and I believe the day-to-day uh, critical schedules that he set with the AD and Bethany, um, who is also the producer on the movie, uh, taking care of many of the things that are day to day that I don't, I'm not burdened with. But I will tell you that surrounding yourself by competent people, even though I'm a photographer and I know how to light and I know what I want, I let the DP tell the story. It's all his. Sure, I said I'd like to shoot this way, or sure, I said, let's, can we backlight it or compliments? But generally speaking, you know, anything that I'm burdened with that's above and beyond storytelling is going to be shown in the movie. You know, so if I'm worried about if someone's going to break their, their neck riding a bike, you know, that is going to burden my ability to do my job. So I think it's really critical. Um, and this, this covers every medium, camera work, it covers storytelling from the script, it covers your ability to be able to trust the actors with the, with the material. You know, there was a number of times on this movie where I, you know, we were shooting it totally out of continuity, and I had to talk to the actress, not in a negative way, but this is, your strength doesn't come yet. <laughs> Even though, you know, you're going there, I want to wait, I want it to build slowly. And she understood it immediately. But, you know, self-editing a movie in advance that's shot out of continuity is a task that I can't even describe. And incidentally, I'm trusting the wardrobe department. I'm trusting hair and makeup. Because, you know, they look different in every scene. And even though I'm shooting this way for, you know, two pages, and then moving the actors this way and something that takes place 70 minutes later, you need to have competent people around you that are following continuity, that are following the, the, the tone of the movie, and all the little details is what makes, I think, it possible to produce independent movies. But I'm the first one to tell you, each time I do one, I feel uh, more and more uh, comfortable because I'm trying not to make the same kind of errors that I did on other movies. You have this amazing studio here in the heart of Hollywood. Why choose New Mexico? It's interesting. I wanted to get out of the studio, number one. And number two, there's no, short of shooting on the back lot at Universal or taking a, a grabbing a piece of the, the um, um, San Fernando Mission, there's just no place to go that you can get the kind of versatility you can. And with the tax credit that you receive as a filmmaker, which incidentally in New Mexico was extraordinary, and I'm not just talking financial, I'm talking support. 
they did so much for us um, in, in a way that filmmakers would want to embrace. I'd be, I'd be their biggest pitch man because never once did we feel abandoned. And incidentally, shooting in Taos is like living here in LA and, sh and shooting up in the mountains. You know, it's, it's two and a half hours outside of Albuquerque. So no matter what you want, it's going to be a pain in the ass. And they helped us in a way that was not only uh, generous, but unexpected. Was that the plan all along, to shoot in New Mexico? I mean, it looks absolutely beautiful. Makes me want to go there, actually. Right. But, I mean, was that the plan all along, or did you look at some of the tax credits, look at some of, I mean... Absolutely. Okay. We looked at everything. If you see the movie, you will, uh, analytically, you will see that the travels to get to New Mexico took us to shoot in Lancaster. Um, but you won't know it's Lancaster. You'll just know that it's the same desert. <laughs> and... Those decisions were entirely economic. We had, I think, uh, 20 extras, and the principals were here in LA, but, and we lost two and a half hours of our day to get there and two and a half days to get back, but we were able to shoot, you know, I think, um, at least a day less here than, than in New Mexico. But when we got to New Mexico, you know, we were anticipating, you know, uh, having a very, very productive days, but every night we would get back and we would have post-production meetings going, what if it rains? <laughs> every day. Because, you know, if you don't have cover sets to go to, you're just throwing your money away. And I know you had just come off a rainy spell before Correct. you got there. Yeah, we lucked out because it rained literally up to a day before we started shooting. In fact, we had to make allowances for mud and it did not rain again for 19 days. Wow. <laughs> it was a total blessing from God, you know? And then when you get done with a scenario like that, uh, and it starts pouring, and I'm talking to you cats and dogs, you realize just how screwed we would have been. There was one day, it was one day before we ended shooting, where it, there was lightning. And I didn't know this, talk about ignorance, you know, the AD came right up to me and said, we're shut down. And I'm going, why? The lightning's 20 miles away. And he goes, we're shut down. And he looked me straight in the eye and he goes, don't question me. You know, I'm not putting the, the, the crew or the cast in jeopardy. And all the mobile homes with the talent had to turn off their engines, you know, because God forbid they get hit. They don't want to have an arc. And um, that was the same day that when I called RAP at 7 o'clock at night, at 7.02 it started raining and the density of the rain was so fierce that it would have it would it would have just been miraculous we even able to finish the movie and by the way I just want to mention something is the actors had other commitments the crew had other commitments there was just no way to go into more days unlike a big you know Hollywood movie when you have that kind of flexibility what advice do you have to first-time, second-time filmmakers on seeking a distribution deal and then actually committing to it? This is a tough question for me because every time you make a deal, you learn about new deals. I'll give you an illustration. When I made my first movie, we didn't have people knocking on our door to distribute my movie. We had sales reps. I never even knew what that was, but there's a lot of companies in LA and Hollywood that are sales rep. They rep movies. 
and they would take your movie to Netflix, and they would take your movie to Fox, and they would make deals. And I totally believe in that scenario. Never even occurred to me, you know, that my next movie would be good enough for someone to go, we want to distribute it. Um, of course, there's no money exchange. You know, you have to wait, get the movie distributed, and then eventually make your money back. But if you're lucky enough to hypothetically wake up in the morning at Sundance and somebody buys your movie to distribute it, they might say, we'll give you X dollars, uh, not to mention the fact that after advertising dollars are spent, we'll give you 50 cents on the dollar, you know, whatever it might be. Um, I did not have that luxury, but I did have the luxury this time of getting a, a reputable distribution company um, and um, taking it up a notch. So each time you, I learn more. But distribution, um, and I'm saying this uh, redundantly because I said it before, is an ever-changing medium. And, uh, you know, I'm learning uh, right as we speak that, you know, filmmakers are expected to do things that have nothing to do with filmmaking. And that is, if you really want to succeed with your movie, social media has to be played. You have to do self-marketing yourself. You got to do interviews like this, and I'm really grateful. But you know, I'm not a social media guy, you know, and but you have to learn how to do that. And it's fascinating to me because I have a number. I don't know on my Facebook, I got a number of people that are filmmakers. So every once in a while, I see a filmmaker promoting their movie, and you know, I'm empathetic because it requires just an inordinate amount of of collective collaboration with the distributor to succeed because they're making the distributor picked up my movies making puts out four movies a month that's 48 movies a year that's a lot of movies for a small company and uh, one of the ones I passed on uh, did 30 or 40 movies a month and they're into the volume aspect so I felt that the one that I picked was more desirable because they would give it more energy and more time and I don't have a regret for that. But here again, I'm speaking from first-time experience. I, I met a, a gentleman just last week who's doing our social media, and he's also a director. And a smart guy, young guy, and you know, he, um, uh, I think, um, if I was able to tell him what I learned now on his first movie, he would have done something differently. And it, it's not like, he made a horrific mistake, but he ultimately took his movie off the market, you know, and that is, uh, um, there are other ways to do it. No different than the woman he told me that on my new film, you know, my last movie wasn't ever exploited on social media, and the content matter itself should have been an easy pitch, but we didn't do it. So is it a missed opportunity? Not really, because the, the source material is timeless. It's happening every day, and it still continues to happen. But, you know, this movie that I just finished comes out basically a week before Valentine's Day. It's, it's no accident. It's a romantic comedy. I like that idea. You know, it helps take the movie to a noticeable level. Otherwise, you're just going to get in the mush. There's a great story in the trades about Netflix buying movies at Sundance last year. Not this year, last year. And it's written by empathetic uh, filmmakers that said that here's a movie that is, everybody knows the title, 
everybody would like to see it, but it was on Netflix for one week on the first page, and then it just disappeared. So you have to really know a lot about the movie, properly spell it, and source it. And that, it's like me, I went last night on Amazon to try to see if my movie was up for sale because it just came out and it required me to go through some closed doors in order to get there. Uh, I'm talking about searching for it because when I typed in the name, it didn't pop right up. And there's a whole other subject, you know, naming your movie. Uh, I think distributors would prefer you name your movie ABCD, you know, because it's, it's closer to the beginning of the alphabet. Perhaps not anymore because everybody now is, is searching for their films and you just type it in. But analytics play a role now. You know, you go on to Netflix or go on to Amazon and you, you're, you're trending with romantic comedies, they'll suggest my movie, hopefully. So that is, you know, a plus to them who are making money and a plus to the distributor who's making money. But all that stuff never existed. I mean, the formats of Netflix and Amazon have changed three times in the last month, meaning how, like right now, when you click on a movie on Amazon, a trailer pops up. And Netflix too, you know, the trailer for anything you're watching, a TV show or whatever. While you're still searching, <laughs> it's playing a commercial. That's all new and innovative technology and, and it helps the filmmaker. But to me, what's really critical is, is that if you know about a filmmaker like me talking about what I experienced, you try to avoid that with your own experience. So maybe my movie would be called, you know, Come and Eat the Food, so it's C rather than M. Or maybe it doesn't matter anymore. I heard you touch on this in another interview, and I'm wondering if you can elaborate, that everything is a cliche and it's all been done before. So how do we keep films fresh? It's, it's an interesting thing because I don't think a filmmaker sets out to, I want to do a fresh approach to food. I want to do a, a fresh approach to a romantic comedy. I think what you do if you're doing a good service to storytelling is try to do it with the best experiences that you've got with the knowledge of knowing that people don't like to be preached to, with the knowledge of knowing that, oh, I want to make a strong female character and it's written strong, but I'd like to make it even stronger because I'd like her to make a statement about, uh, in this particular case, food. Um, and, I, and I also think, you know, cliches, it's, an, it's part of the vernacular of human communications. So it's, it's not a bad thing to make a cliche. People have compared this movie to Chef. Uh, I think who, who wouldn't be more flattered than that? Or a reviewer just reviewed it and compared it to Chocolat. Chocolate was, it was, a, was a major influence on me choosing to make this movie because I wanted it to be a discovery. I wanted it to be warm. I wanted it to be rich. And I wanted it to be real. But, you know, it's funny. There's a, sh there's a, there's a TV show on, a uh, on Amazon right now that's basically a mimic, and I'm not going to tell you the name, of Under the Tuscan Sun. And it's all filmed in um, Greece. And it's unbelievably magically done. It takes place in the 1930s. And I look at that and I say to myself, you know, is that a cliche? Is that an exploitation? Not at all. It's just another way to tell the story that is about place. I want to go watch that. It's a TV show. I want to go watch it every time I, you know, I, I feel a certain need to see the warmth. And 
you know, to be perfectly blunt with you, I am not an exterior filmmaker typically. So for me to want to go to New Mexico and exploit that, the biggest compliment you could give me is comparing it to a movie like Sideways that took parts of Northern California and made it popular because the movie was filmed there. I mean, Taos, I think, will be a major benefactor if the movie's successful. But cliches versus remakes, how are they different? Or you know, the same? Actually, it's one and the same because you go out today to make a remake of you know, any of these, these TV shows that are being made now, um, I think you contemporize it, you know, and you try to make it more um, uh, conducive to what's going on in the world today and hopefully try to, you know, try to do a better job than the original. And it's interesting because I think that Hollywood's got a formula for doing that now and much of it has to do with bringing in the right writers and the right directors because it is an art form and it's failed as much as it succeeded. So cliches, you know, um, I think are just part of the vernacular. Someone's always going to say to you, you know, have you seen this? It's just like that. I just did it. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, the old story uh, 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 that George Lucas once would say, there's only really seven or ten stories ever told, you know. Uh, all these stories have been told before, so your ability to catapult it into a different look, a different drama, a different tone is what makes you know this all so exciting. Uh, I mean, it's funny, the movie that I was about to do was a Holocaust-themed movie, but it took place in the, in the 90s. And what motivated me to do this movie is, is it, it's not about the Holocaust. And because I didn't want to do a movie about the Holocaust. I wanted to do a movie about psychology and about the, the concept of the aftermath of the wall coming down. And that was appealing to me. Um, is it a cliche? Well, if you do what I did as a filmmaker and looked at everything that was on uh, either Netflix or Amazon about these concepts of, of World War II or even World War I, you know, you walk away with just a, you know, a huge jar full of, of wonderful content and then you say, I don't want to do anything like that, I want to do something different. Is it a cliche? I don't know. You know, some people would say it is. So a cliche and then keeping a fresh voice. How does somebody keep a fresh voice? We always hear that, you know, I, I've been reading a biography on David Foster Wallace and how he had this fresh voice at that time and he was breaking all of the rules. Do you think that could really be done today? I realize he was yeah, a writer. Yeah, I, I do, and it's interesting because my movie is a romantic comedy that takes place uh, surrounding food. And I'm here to tell you with no problem dropping names because uh, the chef's table on, on Netflix is just a brilliantly produced show. I wouldn't want to do it, but I love to watch it. And it takes place all around the world and they broke all the rules because there's a million shows about food. So why is that one different? Because the filmmakers are great storytellers. They take you to the far corners of a Buddhist monk in South Korea. I mean, who would have done that? And they have drones and they have technology that they're using to make this just a, not only a delightful one hour special, but you're there, you feel it. But isn't it just the same as what you know, um, well, I've been doing this for so many years, I can go back to the beginning where, 
where they had these food shows and you got the people Martha Stewart cooking and, and then they show stills behind her of Tuscany <laughs> or wherever the food she's cooking and there's really no difference in the storytelling except for, for how they went about executing it.